You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 119 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Well, I think there would just be one word that would sum up how I'm feeling today and that word, Valerie, is not a word of the week. Okay. I do have a word. Go on. Relieved. Relieved? Why are you relieved? I'm relieved because my structural edit for the fourth book in the Mapmaker Chronicles series, was finalised last night and sent back to my publisher (gasps) only two days later than I told her I was going. (laughs) So I'm really, really relieved. It's, um, I think the whole thing with a structural edit, I I put some tips on my blog last week about this, three tips for surviving a structural edit, and they were very relevant tips and they were great, but I forgot to add one, Mm -hmm. which is it's always going to be harder than you think it's going to be. Oh, Um, yes. Even though you think it's going to be hard, you cannot really truly understand the pain of it until you're halfway through. And um, it is a little bit like, I think, childbirth. I think you go through it and then you your brain immediately forgets the agony because if it didn't, you would never go back and do it again. <laughs> oh, my God. I, well, it sort of is. I just felt like and, – and it's so in- it's so all-consuming, you know, and so my whole life is still going on, of course. I still yes. have all these thousand things to do and children and husbands and dogs. and you got husbands. I do have, well, many husbands, only one. <laughs> it feels like many sometimes. Um, all that sort of stuff is still going on, but this, you know, you've, you've just got this all-consuming thing going on in your brain the whole time, and that's, yeah. It, yeah, it's quite exhausting. But anyway, it's over, so we should, let's just cheer. Let's just. Yeah, yay. Yo. But did, so, you, did you do anything to celebrate? Like, did you, you know, I don't know, did you have a reward mechanism? Oh, yeah, no, I don't do that. Oh. I'm, not, I'm not the carrot, remember? I'm more the stick. I know oh. you do the banoffee pie thing, yeah. but that's not how I operate. I just work towards deadlines and then I have a small moment of yahoo to myself, <laughs> just like really, literally. And it was a really quiet. I had to just tweet it last night because it was 10 past 11. Oh. So I, yeah, so I couldn't even like cheer because everyone was asleep. So I had a little tweet, yahoo. That would be hard to have banoffee pie at 10 past 11, but I would still do it. I know you would, I, mm. but I would I would not be organised enough to have the banoffee pie in the house, so I would have to then go and get it, which would be stressful. But anyway, <laughs> it's over. So, um, so yeah, so I'm having a, a day of, of, you know, cleaning my house because that's pretty much what I need to do at the end of every edit. And then yes. um, I'm back in to write a book with Al as of oh, this week. Oh, fantastic. Hashtag mm-hmm. write a book with Al. Hashtag, yes, because we had a bit of a hiatus while I, you know, dove deep into the edit and now I'm I'm back into it so um, so where can people do write a book with Al where can people follow on hashtag write a book with Al oh the hashtag yeah so the hashtag is on Twitter you'll find us on Twitter and you'll also find it on my Facebook page Alison Tate writer um and it's a really nice little 
community thing. It's a great If you are idea. writing, then it. just join us because at least you'll feel like you're part of a team, which I find is really, really helpful. And also, even if, so you, even if you haven't participated in Write a Book with Al before the hiatus, you can still join now. Oh, absolutely, because every word is a helpful word. I've still mm. got at least at least 10,000 words to write. So we'll be going for another couple of weeks while I sort of get myself together with that. So, um, yeah, please join us. Feel free. It's it's quite fun. The, the most fun you can have sitting down. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I have one word to describe how I'm feeling right now. Oh, tell me. Cold. Cold? Yes, I have every single heater in this house on, practically every single heater, because last night I watched uh, the movie Everest. And I've been freezing ever since. Are you kidding me? You are feeling a residual chill, are you? I am. I've been freezing ever since. I might add it was actually a very good movie, star-studded cast based on real-life events, and uh, it was very good. Right. So you're currently sitting there in your snow jacket, are you? (laughs) Shivering. Yes, not quite the snow jacket because I it would make a noise as I moved for the podcast. Oh yes, that sort of rustling noise. Yes, yeah, no, it's not good. Okay. But I have many woolens on. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad you're warm or yes. not, as the case yes. may be. Yes. Let's move on and give a shout out to John K. Martin. Now, John K. Martin has left us a review on iTunes and he has said, walking the talk. He's called it walking the talk. And he has said, this has become an essential part of my podcast diet. I listen to podcasts when I walk each day before I sit down in my study in Canberra. Oh, he'd be cold. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's probably got a heater on Val. Yeah, he's probably. fine <laughs> before I sit down in my study in Canberra to write or tend to social media and so you want to be a writer ticks most boxes what I like most are the interviews with other authors or people in the industry because we can all learn from the things others did right or wrong the podcast delivers lots of other up-to-date industry news tips and trivia which is all food for thought to me so there you go. Thank you so much, John K. Martin. Thanks, John. Glad yeah. to, I'm very happy to be walking with you each day. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, really appreciate it. And, of course, if you have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really be grateful So, because it certainly helps us in the rankings, doesn't it, Al? It does. Thank you very much to all of those people who have left us reviews. Yes. Shall we move on to the world of writing and blogging and publishing this week? Oh, let's. Oh, let's. Oh, let's. Okay, so our first link is all about um, why it's important to start submitting your work to literary journals. Hmm. Because the thing is, sometimes if you have Sometimes you might be in a situation where you do have a writing group, you can get feedback from your writers group, but writing can be something that is very isolating. And if you don't have friends who are who get it or who are, aren't in a similar space or they might just be your mother who's going to say really nice things about your work no matter what, one good way to get some level of feedback, even if it's just the fact that you get published or not, is to submit to literary journals. And I'm often quite surprised at the number of people who don't bother. And it certainly gives you a good indication as to, particularly if you make it into the journal, that there's something there. And of course, many uh, publishers read the journals as well. So it's it's a good start. I was interviewing, I was chatting to an author the other day who has his debut novel out and 
you know, he got his start in submitting to literary journals and getting published there. And that's where he got the motivation and the validation, I suppose, that he was at least on the right track. Mm, it is a great way to... Um... It is a great way to build credibility within the space, and the other yeah. way to do it, of course, is competitions. Um, yeah, that can give you the, can offer the same thing. You get feed because often competitions will offer a feedback aspect. You get feedback through that, and if obviously if you win a competition, it's a great way to build some credibility as well. I have to confess, Val, that I have never submitted my work to a literary journal ever. But that is because you are in that space and you have that feedback from your peers. And you're, you know, you're not, true. you're not writing in isolation because you've got many no. writer friends. But I also have, but having said that, I have submitted my work to competitions, particularly when I first started out, mm. I entered competitions to try and get some idea of where my work, where I was up to with my work, like what, how things were kind of moving along, whether I was getting things right, getting things wrong. Um, so either way, I think is, is a good way to sort of get that feedback or, and also to kind of start to make networking kind of absolutely yeah definitely and if you do submit to a competition so here's the thing right you know I judged a literary competition oh yes I remember that your 800 short stories bazillion short stories and (laughs) you know it only only felt like a bazillion yeah a bazillion I had to pick a winner but I also had to pick the short list Mm. I mean I had to pick the long list and then I picked the short list and the thing is the finalists were invited to the presentation night Mm. and um uh, you, you kind of sometimes get a sense whether you're going to win or not. <laughs> and what I found surprising was that some finalists, even though they lived only two suburbs away, didn't attend the presentation night. And I particularly Ooh. noticed this one uh, finalist who didn't attend because his writing was so good. I was going, even though he didn't win, I could see the potential in it and I was going to introduce him to a bunch of people but he didn't show up. Oh. You know, so just because you don't win doesn't mean that you shouldn't necessarily attend as a finalist. No. You know, because you never know what's going to happen, the connections you're going to make. And honestly, I was so impressed with this guy's writing. I really wanted to, you know, I was going to do something about it, but Mm. he didn't show up. Mm. Okay, Mm. so there's another bit of advice for you. Follow through. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Never underestimate the power of networking, Mm. especially in this space. Let's move on to something quite different, just a short and sharp tip because I love this tip because I say it all the time. Okay. (laughs) And I love the fact that somebody else has said it. It's from a blog called The Writer's Alley Mm. where friends and stories meet. And it's (laughs) (laughs) – I like it. Yeah, and it's a post by Casey Herringshaw and it's titled, Does Your Writing Have Rhythm? Now, I really like this because I often say to people, read your stories out aloud because you will stumble over something. And if you've stumbled over something, there is clearly something wrong with that sentence. Mm. And I don't think people often enough read their stories out aloud. No. Don't you agree? I agree. I totally agree. I read my stories um, out aloud. I read my uh, drafts to my children and I listen. It's as much so that they can tell me where the boring bits are and I can remove them, Mm. but it's as much so that I can hear it. And you do stumble and you know exactly why. Once you've actually started to read it aloud, you can see, oh, no, that's not right. I need to change that. um, And I remember having a conversation recently with a friend of mine who sent me an article to edit 
And she said to me, I can't figure out what's wrong with this, but it's not, there's something's not right. Yeah. And I, I, I started reading it and immediately I could see what was wrong with it. There were too many words in it. It was like every sentence had too many words mm. in it. And I went back to her and I was like literally just like crossing bits out, removing sections of sentences and things like that. And I just said to her, like, if, if something, if you're thinking it's reading wrong, it was, it was passive. There were too many words in yeah. it. It wasn't active enough. I was all I was really doing was bringing two sentences into like into one by removing chunks of sentences. Yeah. And um, I I went back to her and I said, if you have this problem again, you need to look at it, read it aloud to yourself, and think there are too many words in this sentence. And that's Mm. where that's where you know that's where editing begins. Absolutely, absolutely. You need to be economic with your words and make Mm. sure every word counts. Mm. So I have a couple of links from The Right Life and I just really like these ones. Um, The first one I think is so clever. It's called Seven Ways Besides Sales to Make Money Off Your Novel. Now, the thing is, it's kind of not a great title, to be honest, (laughs) but the article is very good. And it talks about the fact that when you release your novel, uh, you know, people are often told to write some free material, like Mm. you'll often see, um, say you write a novel about princesses or whatever, and you might then write a personal essay on the... um, on on the princess syndrome that's Mm. affecting young girls these days or something Mm. like that. Mm. So the thing is that people might say, oh, well, how am I – there's only a limited number of topics I can write about because my novel is about whatever this topic is. But what's clever about this article, it gives you some ideas on how to, as they say, exploit your novel for additional publishable material. Mm. So some examples that they've given is, number one, location. Where is your novel set? You know, New York, Tehran, Moscow, Buenos Aires. You know, you might be able to write a travel article, say, about that about that location, but then link it into your novel. You might have um, the settings. So do your characters visit spas or hide in caves or visit museums? So how about things like 10 most visited caves in the world <laughs> or spas made famous by novelists? Mm. or buildings that remind people of dragons. You, mm. you see, like it's it's quite clever. Um, another one that they talk about is um, accessories. Does your character like luxury brands? Do you write erotica and include adult toys in your narrative? Or mm. is there perhaps a furniture theme? So you could brainstorm angles that are associated with those accessories, like most popular high-end brands in fiction. Or Mm. sex toys through the eyes of 10 characters. (laughs) So this article goes on and it's quite interesting, uh, but it makes you think outside of the box of different ways that you can get publicity for your novel that are just a little bit non-conventional. I think it's very clever. Oh, I think it's clever too, and I think it's approaching your. It's actually approaching your publicity and your novel as a as a feature writer would approach yes. the subject. And we talk a lot about the importance of not pitching a not pitching a subject, but pitching an angle. Yes. And so it's a it's a matter of thinking about your 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 book as the subject, and then contemplating all the different angles. So when the Mapmaker Chronicles came out a couple of years ago, I um I wrote a series of ten completely different posts for different blogs, different websites. I mean, I did all the usual, 
I got very good at answering, you know, what was my favourite book and all those. I did all of that sort of stuff. But then I also created my own series of articles, which I then pitched out around the place. And I did things like uh, uh, 14 books that will inspire kids to travel because, yes. the, you know, we're, we're mapping. I did... Uh, books for adventurous girls because we have you know this one character in the Mapmaker Chronicles who's a quite awesome girl. So I did, um, you know, raising adventurous girls. I did. Mm. I, I I tried to think about ways of approaching my subject matter in a really not particular. Like I didn't want to write necessarily, you know, about maps or about. Yeah. I I could do that too, and I did do that for somebody. Can't remember who. Um, but I was also looking at, well, who's going to read this thing and how am I going to approach, how, how am I going to, to present my book and the material, you know, related to my book in the most interesting way possible for those people who may not otherwise, like girls nece- won't necessarily pick up the Mapmaker Chronicles, but yeah. if they know there's a great girl in it, then maybe they will. So I, I just wanted to let parents know because at the end of the day, it's parents who buy books for my age group. So I targeted publications and blogs and things like that that reached a lot of parents and I wrote books that, that, that may, maybe suggested to them that this particular book would be great for their particular child. So um, really think about it as a features writer or an editor would think about your material and try to find mm. a different angle, not necessarily the bog standard thing they don't necessarily want to talk to you about your book yes but if you can present your book in such a way um as to create interesting relevant content for them then you know they're not going to say no to you yeah absolutely Mm. fantastic all right another great link from the right life as well i really liked was how to cope when a freelance writing client dumps you now this is more for freelance writers who write for magazines and newspapers online or in print but also content writers copywriters mm. people who you know are writing shorter pieces and they may have um a series of a number of clients or they may have a main client that gives them a lot of work like for example um, a real estate writer may get a lot of work from a particular real estate chain or something Mm. like that Mm. so I thought this was a practical and interesting um, look at exactly how to cope when a freelance writing client dumps you but I wanted to turn that on its head and really kind of think well how do you not need this advice? How do you get yourself in a position as a freelance writer to to be where if a client dumps you, it doesn't matter, mm. right? What mm. do you think? Well, I think the first tip has to be don't put all your eggs in one basket. Absolutely. I think, you know, I think as a, as a freelance writer, it can be very, very easy to – to get into a rhythm and into a rut of working a lot with one particular client because particularly if they start, you know, the relationship becomes so good that they start giving you work instead of you having to pitch constantly. Um, And that's a really attractive place to be. Um, But it it can also be, you know, a very dangerous place to be because if the editor moves on, then you have to start all over again. Or if your content, you know, the person you're working for at a particular place, I remember I had a a, um, a quite a good client a couple of years ago that I was doing a lot of corporate work for mm. and they it was terrific you know because it was really regular and it was just cruising along nicely um, but the marketing manager that I was working with quite closely left mm. and as soon as she left the whole place went into disarray because they weren't quite sure what was going on and it wasn't necessarily um, and then they, the new person comes in and they start rethinking their strategy yes um, and so that work dried up you know, almost overnight, but I was 
you know, for me, it was like, I, I mean, obviously it's a chunk of cash and that's always a sad thing, but I was working with other people. So I simply ramped up the stuff that I was doing elsewhere, used the space that I got from not doing that work to work on my, on my novels and, mm. you know, and worked on and just continued on regardless, which is what you have to do. If you go yeah. into a panic and into free fall and start, you know, freaking out and, you know, sending out a thousand pitches and getting yourself into a complete nut of mess, um, that's not going to help you. You can't run yeah. around like a headless chicken. You've actually got to think, okay, well, what am I doing? What can I do now? Who can I contact to maybe get some more work from? Yeah. Where can I pitch my next article? What You know, you have to be proactive about it. You can't just um, freak out. I, I remember being in a freelance forum years ago, like it was, you know, probably five years ago now, um, and a particular magazine was closing down yeah. and there was a, a person in there who was in an absolute state of yes. panic, total state of panic. I think I was in the same forum. I think you were I there. Remember this. I'm sure you were there um, because the work that they, they, that, that w- they had got themselves into a position where that was all they were doing was yep. this one particular thing. 100% um, of their income. 100%. Yep. And a, so that, that magazine closing down cause them to go into a total tailspin mm. and of course everyone else in that because it was a fairly experienced freelance writing forum yep. just said mate pitch some work yeah <laughs> do you know what I mean like I it was know. like but they had done that some... for like five or so more years they've done it for years where and they, I think they would forgotten yeah how to pitch because yeah. you know it is a practice thing you really you do get out of the rhythm of it and I think that they had got themselves into such a state that they were you know, freaked out, even though mm. we're a particularly freelanced experience, uh, experienced freelancer. So mm. don't get yourself into that position, I think is number one yeah. piece of advice. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a big fan of exactly what you said about don't put all of your eggs in one basket because, you know, yeah, it's happened to me in the past where a client has stopped or they, as you say, they've changed hans or whatever restructure a restructure is enough to have you out in the cold that's all you need yeah that's exactly right you know but if you have five other clients it doesn't matter Mm. you're okay Mm. but so yes um we'll put the link in the show notes of course for all of these and you can find that at so you want to be a writer.com.au but you also have a link for us out oh do i (laughs) yes do i your tips for surviving a structural oh, edit. No, no, no. Oh, no, I, I just put see. that in there because I wanted to put the links in the show note to yes. my uh, three tips for surviving a structural edit. Oh, absolutely. Fantastic. So, yeah. So in case you're interested, and of course, my number one thing with that is not to jump straight in. You have to actually do some serious thinking before you start. And people may be very, very well surprised after listening to me talk about how I work um, to know that I never start a structural edit without an outline. I know. Are you shocked? What? You never say. Explain that. <laughs> well, when I get the notes back from my from yeah. my publisher, um, requiring particularly the 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 uh, structural edit I've just done required me to change the setup a little bit of the story. Okay. So I had to go right back to the start and rethink the story. So I then worked out what I was going to do and wrote that out as an outline. And then I inserted like story remains as follow as as written. And then if there was a new bit that had to be added. You know, whatever. Oh. And I worked my structural edit to an outline so that I right. didn't get lost. Because when you're juggling two storylines, as you can do um, if you're needing to change the setup or you're needing to make some major changes to the beginning of your story, you need to you need a little map so that you know where you are as you're going through. I don't write to an outline, but I mm. always edit to one. 
Yes, which right. This sounds weird, but yeah. Interesting. Anyway, you can see those uh, notes in the show notes. Now. All right. Let's talk about our giveaway because it's exciting. It's massive. (laughs) Well, um, we're going to break all records. They're just getting bigger and bigger. So this week, in fact, this month, to celebrate Crime and Thriller Month. (laughs) It's Crime and Thriller Month here (laughs) on So You Want to Be a Writer (laughs) and at the Australian Writer Centre. So, of course, because it's Crime and Thriller Month, we have a massive book pack to give away of crime and thriller novels. In fact, it's so massive that we have two book packs of eight books each. And they are filled with crime and thriller goodies by authors such as Ruth Rendell, Nathan Besser, James Phelan, Jeffrey Deaver, Kate Saunders, Bram Connolly, a whole heap of fantastic crime and thriller authors. Now, entries are open until the 29th of August and all you need to do is go to writerscentre.com.au slash win and uh, and that's where you enter. But it's it's a wonderful opportunity to win one of two book packs of eight books each of crime and thriller, um, fantastic crime and thriller novels. So there you go. Enter writerscentre.com.au slash win. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Inside Publishing, gives you a peek inside the complex world of publishing. Created by author of more than 30 books, Pamela Freeman, who also writes as Pamela Hart, the course gives you a step-by-step guide on everything you need to know about the publishing process and how this should affect your writing, pitching and submissions. It's essential information if you want to navigate the publishing world and get the best chance for your book success. You'll learn about the copyright issues that will affect you, what territories you need to negotiate for, and how ebooks and audiobooks will impact your income. You'll also discover whether indie publishing or traditional publishing is better for your goals. With our on-demand courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash publishing. So, Al, are you ready for our word of the week? <laughs> well, given I've already given my word of the week, relieved, I'm always <laughs> ready for your word of the week, Val. Always. Our word of the week is, it's to do with, oh, no, I'm not going to tell you, actually. Okay. Okay, I'm just going to say it and see if okay. you know what it is. Go. Do you know what graphophobia is? No. Graphophobia, that's... Um, like the word graph and then O and then phobia. No. It Fear is. of maths. <laughs> <laughs> I hated graphs in maths. Maybe it's that. <laughs> no, it is an overwhelming or irrational fear of writing or handwriting. Oh, yes. maybe I have that. No, you don't. Well, I have Acqu- an irrational fear of handwriting. I hate it. But anyway, continue. Tell me well, what it's Tell me what it all means. According to Phobia Source, which is a website, sufferers mm. may doubt their ability to write well and experience intense fear that they will fail in writing. Most people with this fear might have experienced a traumatic event in the past, such as writing for a class assignment or project and being ridiculed or criticised for having written such a poor piece. Some also may have, interestingly, very poor handwriting. 
This may be an unconscious manifestation of their poor self-esteem, wherein they will not make their handwriting legible so that it will be difficult to read and others will not read it anymore. Mm. Interesting, Goodness. huh? Some people need to go to therapy. Mm. Yeah, graphophobia. Wow. Okay. There you go. So try try including the word of the week in your blog posts, listeners. I know that there's a whole bunch of listeners who are um, including their the word of the week in their blog posts. And uh, if you do that, make sure you give us a shout out on social media so that we can have a look. And Most retweet you. Yes, exactly. Hmm. Now, because it's crime and thriller month, Al, we have uh, a couple of exciting things happening with crime and thriller one, month. Number okay. one is uh, we have a new pop-up podcast. A pop-up podcast? A pop-up podcast. Does that mean I'm get, I have to pop up and podcast? <laughs> just... no. You know um, how I you have... You should have warned me about this in advance. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to pop up and, oh. and or podcast. But you know how you have pop-up shops? Yes, I do. Where they just pop up places and then they go away. Well, this podcast, which is called Murder and Mayhem, and you can search for it in iTunes, Murder and Mayhem, it is only going to be for the month of August and it's going to go intensively for 31 days of August and it's only going to be about crime and thriller writing. So if you're interested in crime and thriller writing of any kind or mysteries or, you know, anything like that, go visit the Murder and Mayhem podcast uh, which you'll find on iTunes. And to accompany that podcast is a free ebook. So you can download a free ebook called A Month of Murder and Mayhem, and it'll take you through 31 days. And you can, you know, go through it however you like. You can do one per day for 31 days where you just um, absorb the insights and tips and techniques of a particular author, that crime and thriller author that we've curated. Or you can download the book and do it, you know, once a week if you want a little bit more of a laid back approach. But you can download the free ebook at murdercourse.com. Wow. There you go. Wow. podcast. How exciting. Very exciting. But even more exciting is we're kicking off murder. No, we're kicking off our crime and thriller month with our writer in residence this week. Who is? Are you ready? I, I couldn't be more ready. <laughs> well, it's someone you know. It's L.A. Larkin, also known ah, as Louisa Larkin. Yes. So she has just written her third novel, Devour, and it's fantastic. And her her first couple of novels were The Genesis Floor and Thirst, and they are all thrillers. And this particular novel, Devour, it's set in Antarctica. So when I read it, I was also very, very cold and had to have all the heaters on. (laughs) (laughs) You're really torturing yourself this month, aren't you? (laughs) That's right. She's also a presenter at the Australian Writers' Centre and she teaches the crime and thriller writing course. So let's have a listen to L.A. Larkin. So thanks for joining us today, Louisa. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, for readers who haven't read your book yet, Devour, can you tell us what it's about? So Devour is an action and conspiracy thriller. It is the first in a series of thrillers featuring um, a new character called Olivia Wolfe, who is an investigative journalist. Mm -hmm. Um, The very nature of her job means that she goes to uh, very dangerous locations. Um, She investigates dangerous people. 
and um, her life is pretty much in permanent peril. Um, and that, of course, makes it very exciting um, uh, for the story. Uh, in Devour, uh, she is in Antarctica um, uh, at a remote field site where they're drilling down to uh, what they believe is a, a lake that has been buried beneath ice for centuries. Um, and it is beneath three kilometres of ice. It, and in that lake, these scientists believe that there is life, wow. that there is um, alien life um, that has never before had contact with mankind. And so their mission is to bring that life form to the surface. Um, and, of course, the premise of the book is, well, what if that all went horribly wrong? Mm. What if it was a bad decision mm -hmm. to do that? Now, how in the world <laughs> did the idea for this book form? Where did you think, I'm going to write about ancient life buried three kilometres below the surface in Antarctica? Well... I, I've always found Antarctica fascinating, yes. um, and as I think you probably know, I've I've been there myself. I spent time there. I spent time with the uh, Australian Antarctic Division and British Antarctic Survey, actually interviewing a lot of their scientists, meeting their researchers, learning their survival techniques. So I, I'm I'm a huge fan of the continent. I'm a massive fan of the protection of that continent, but um, the story of Devour. Is um, was really inspired by um, a real expedition to Antarctica in 2012 um, to do exactly this. A British team went to a place um, uh, in Antarctica above what they've called Lake Ellsworth. So the Lake Ellsworth in the story um, is a real place. It's a real lake that they believe is buried down there. And this team did try to dr drill down through the through the ice to to reach what they believe is liquid water because of the warm earth, earth geothermal mm. currents underneath, um, and to find the life form. Unfortunately, their drill broke halfway through. Um, you can imagine how difficult it would be to do that, um, and they had to cancel the mission. So they they never found what they were looking for. And I was reading about this, and I thought this is just the perfect premise for a thriller because if I then take it from that point where they do actually succeed to bring it to the surface and then all sorts of nasty things happen, sabotage, murder, um, people turn up who shouldn't be there, <laughs> it's quite clear that it could be used for something that is not good. I won't say too much because I don't want to spoil it for people. Um, and um, Olivia is, amongst all of it, trying to find out, um, you know, what is going wrong and to prevent um, a, a global catastrophe. And that's really what the story is about, that she um, will become a person who will try to prevent this, will become very isolated, will not be believed by her peers, by her boss, by the police, by anybody. Um, and um, she will have to potentially sacrifice herself to stop this terrible thing from happening. Mm. Now, so Olivia Wolfe is the protagonist and I know that you're really passionate about having strong female leads, particularly in books like this, where this is, as you say, a conspiracy thriller. Do you think they're generally missing from the thriller genre? You know, Valerie, that is a really great question because 
I the reason why I write thrillers um, is because I love reading them and I read every night and I've always got you know a thriller under my nose from somebody and you know thrillers do span the term thrillers does span a very very broad spectrum of of the genre and you can get anything from the sort of more psychological thriller where you you sometimes have say a woman being stalked by a bit of a psycho nutter um, and the women woman is sometimes but not always the victim of the story who then becomes the heroine um, you have a lot of thrillers where um, uh, women play important roles but they are the supporting characters so I mean just off the top of my head I don't know everybody tends to know say Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code well Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code the supporting uh, character is, is a female who's also a symbologist um, and, you know, she provides a vital role, um, but she's often in terrible trouble. So she needs rescuing. Um, there are some thrillers, more at the action and conspiracy end, which is where I write, um, where you do have some female leads. Um, they then again tend to be more your ex-military types um, or, ex or, or R or F FBI, some kind of trained person. Um, I think that is possibly because inevitably when you write the kind of fast-paced action end of the world as we know it where the stakes are high and the enemies are usually armed and trained and very dangerous that you tend to have male leads um, because there are almost inevitably fight scenes um, and people get hurt and the central character does get hurt uh, but I'm I see no reason why you can't have a woman in that role. Um, but I'm not keen to create, um, or I wasn't keen to create, um, a, a female lead who was ex-military or, or ex-military police or ex-police or and so on. Um, because I've, I'm very fascinated by... Um, what investigative journalists do and actually how um, incredibly hard the work is and actually how incredibly dangerous. And um, the inspiration for Devour and the inspiration for the character of Olivia Wolfe, although I must stress that um, this particular journalist in no way resembles Olivia Wolfe. I've completely made up Olivia Wolfe's life and, and personality and, and everything else. But the inspiration was a journalist that I used to read. I used to read her articles voraciously, and her name was Marie Colvin, and she was an American journalist um, who um, reported mainly from war zones. Um, you may have seen photos of her because at one point um, she lost an eye, um, um, was badly injured, and she, she was a sort of uh, an attractive woman, but she had a black eye patch as a result of that. Um, and anyway, she, she was a great believer in reporting the innocent victims of wars, and they were often the women and children. So it meant that she was going in where bombardments were happening and, and so on to report this. Um, and I believe from the top of my head, it was mainly for The Guardian in London that she was reporting for. Um, so forgive me if I've got that wrong, but I think that's correct. Um, but very sadly, um, in the bombardment of Homs in Syria um, in 2012, she died. Um, but her bravery um, and her resilience and her desire to pursue the truth, um, because that's what she felt that that was the role that that, that was the role that she had. She kept governments and the military um, and 
all of us honest by telling us about what was really happening. And I, and I thought, wow, you know, I write about made up heroes and made up heroines, but here is a woman who I believe was, you know, really incredibly brave. And then I thought, well, wouldn't she make a fantastic character in a thriller? And um, that's really how the idea of having someone like Olivia Wolfe um, as a series character, that I sent her off to all sorts of dangerous places and she un uncovers all sorts of nasty um, things going on, um, but she's brave enough to keep going. So you say that this is going to be part of a series. You've already, presumably you're working on the second book already? I am. Um, uh, so I've just got back from South Africa where the next book um, is mainly set. Right. Um, and um, there, there is already a YouTube video out about this, so I'm not going to spoil it if I, if I basically say that there, um, there is a topic um, which I think uh, is very close to a lot of people's hearts if they're concerned with the poaching that is going on in South Africa and the syndicates, the powerful syndicates that are behind it. So I won't say any more, but okay. <laughs> um, it's called Prey, as in P-R-E-Y. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's the next one in the series. So you, the book is called Prey? Yes, the next one. Ah, okay. It's after Devour. Yes. So we've got Devour, then we've got Prey. And the Fantastic. titles really sort of, um, ref, um, well, the plan is that the titles will reflect the main topic of the story. Yeah, brilliant. So you obviously take your research seriously because you've just gone to South Africa for the next book. You have already, you've previously gone to Antarctica because, of course, one of your previous books, Thirst, was set in Antarctica as well. When you went to Antarctica, did you go there um, with specific research that you wanted to do because you knew that these were some of the plot points in your book or did you go there just to basically suss what was going on and then write your plot accordingly depending on what you discovered? Well, the when I was in Antarctica, um, I was writing, um, well, working on Thirst. So, um, uh, so... I wanted to, I, I think um, there are some locations where um, through research, through reading, say, journalist blogs and, and all sorts of things, you can, you can get away with perhaps not being there. Um, it is difficult, though. I think, you know, you use pictures and so on to try and um, bring um, locations to life. But I think when... Um, the environments are something that you're really not used to. I think it's very difficult to do so. So if it's at all possible, I do try and get there. So first, for, for me, going to Antarctica at that time was to experience the cold, to mm. know how debilitating it can be, to understand how dangerous a location it is in itself without adding murderers to the mix, you know, <laughs> or potential assassins or anything yes. else, you know. Um, and um, to smell it, to touch it, to taste mm. it, to hear it, to hear the noises, you know. I remember when I was one time when I was there when um, I thought, I, I mean, you know I'm a dog lover. Mm, yes. So, and, I, and, and, and there are no dogs in Antarctica. Many years ago there used to be dogs, sled dogs, but they were ban banned from Antarctica a long time ago. So un unlike where the Arctic, they have sled dogs. In the Antarctic, they do not. But I was sitting there thinking, I can hear a dog barking. Am I going mad? Maybe I am. Um, but it was a fur seal that sounded 
Um, oh. so I swear, honestly, it was it was like a dog, and it completely amazed me. And then I turned around, and I could see this fur seal on a rock, looking very stroppy and staring at me. And <laughs> and he he was doing this barking noise. But it's little details like that that I think it's very hard to pick up if you can't actually be there and live mm. it. Um, and I hope I hope it helps, you know, bring the story to life. Oh, um, absolutely. And- there are some scenes where I'm sitting there and I'm shivering. Because I, oh, good. You know, well, because that, that's, that's a great response. Yeah, because you actually feel, oh, my God, really? People need to exist through this kind of environment. And it's really, really visceral. And it's really, really, well, real, obviously. So I think obviously visiting there and rather than just reading blogs on Google, it makes um, makes a big difference. So you're on to the second Olivia Wolf book. Now, um, before you wrote this one, before you wrote Devour, had you planned out the journey? Had you planned out the, the plot or are you the sort of writer who just discovers, starts with a premise and starts writing and sees what happens? Well, um, it's it, it's interesting because I have changed a bit mm. over my writing career, um, and I think it's because um, uh, how should I put this? With every book, I want to do better. Mm-hmm. With every book, I want to challenge myself, um, and I want to produce the absolute best novel yet. Um, and so, what has been happening is. Um, uh, leading up to Devour, and particularly with Devour, it's the most complex of my thrillers, as in lots of plot twists. There is a psychological thriller element to it with the stalker, um, which is a subplot. Mm. Um, you know, there there are there are lots of potential um, uh, villains in the story, uh, and I'm deliberately keeping Olivia and I hope the reader guessing um, all the way along the way. Um, there's one character, Vitaly Yashkov, is he or isn't he, should he or shouldn't he be trusted? You know, is he or isn't he with the SVR, which is what used to be the KGB? Um, so because it's such a complicated and I hope it, and therefore intriguing and exciting plot and with, with subplots, um, I needed to plan a lot more. And so when I first started out, um, it was much more... Um, you know, let the pen, just keep the pen moving, as you say, which really these days, of course, is keep your fingers tapping over the keys, yes. um, you know, and um, I'm a great believer in the combination of the two, but the way I worked with Devour and the way I'm now working on Prey, and this this is going to sound so embarrassingly old-fashioned, um, <laughs> so just bear with me, because mm-hmm. I've tried all sorts of things and all sorts of ways of doing this. And eventually, I think you find what just works for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you remember that um, when you used to go to libraries, mm-hmm. they used to have little index cards oh, in yes. wooden boxes? In the catalogue, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'd pull them out and you search for an author name and then there'd be this little card. Well, those little cards you can still actually buy from the post office, believe it or not. Um, and so what I do is... Um, I summarize my chapters on these little cards and, and I'm, um, I tend to write shorter um, chapters um, and, you know, we're talking normally around 70 odd chapters for a thriller. So, you know, there's quite a few of them. And then I, I, I plan, you know, who I, I make it clear on those cards, whose point of view is it? 
So in Davao, there are a number of different points of view. Uh, Olivia's, of course, is the main one, but there are others like the stalker. Um, and um, I put down the point of view and I, um, uh, you know, write down what the key points of the particular chapters are. You know, are, are, am I writing, you know, a revelation about who the villain is? Is it about, um, is it an inciting incident that will propel the central character out of their comfort zone? And so I sort of go through in that sort of way. And then I go to the dining room and I lay all these cards out on my dining table because it's a big one. And I look at it and I take a step back and I go, you know, I might say to it, say, I'm allowing too much time to introduce this important character. I should introduce them earlier. Or um, this action is taking far too long. It's not exciting enough. I'm going to bring it forward. And so by stepping back that way, but I prefer to do it physically. I know you can do these sort of things. There are all sorts of like software programs that you can do. I prefer to physically pick up the card and move it around. I'm, I also prefer to physically read. Um, a printed copy of a book. So I'm, I clearly like to be that more sort of um, directly engaged type of person. So I am, I probably, if, um, I was in a debate a couple of years ago, which was, are you a plotter or a pantser? Which I'm sure a lot of people have attended those kind of debates. Um, and I put my hand up for a plotter because um, I think I'm not as um, meticulous as some authors are. I know there are, there are authors out there who almost plan their whole book. You know, yes. I mean, it's so detailed. Um, but I like to ha know where I'm going to make sure I've really got it as tight and exciting as possible. But then I give myself total permission to, to, to let the writing process take over. So if I find myself doing something that really isn't as per I'd planned, but it's almost inevitably way better. I just let it happen. Um, so it's that sort of, it's that strange mixture of um, your imagination taking over, but at least knowing the, the direction that you want to go. And invariably, well, when you let it happen, when it's taken you off in another direction, in your experience, have you typically found that you stick with that direction and then you need yes. to rearrange the rest of your cards kind of thing yes. again? Right. Yes. Um, um, absolutely. Um, I, I, I'd say some of the best plot, plot twists, the ones that people have really commented on, you know, you get the nice comments in Facebook and email saying, oh, wow, I never saw that coming. Yes. You know, what a great, you know, um, thing I hadn't, you know. Yes. Um, then um, it's, it, it's inevitably because I've follow, let the character do what they would do naturally rather than trying to force them Mm. Um, perhaps into a behaviour that, that just wouldn't be right. They wouldn't react that way. And I, But I think to be able to do that, you need to know your characters really well. So I spend um, – I'm in a genre that is very plot-driven, inevitably. Mm. Oh, yeah. But I spend – the first thing I do when I'm, I'm approaching a book is the characters. It's knowing those characters back to front, everything about them, how they would react to certain situations, what their strengths and weaknesses are, you know, do they believe in God, what socks do they wear? You know, I mean, I'm talking everything. Um, so how do you do that? How do you do that? If you're starting to formulate a character, do you write all of that down or have a file on them to, with their socks and stuff like that? How do you do that? <laughs> I do write it all down. I have um, – so, you know, when I'm, when I'm teaching um, – with the Australian Writers' Centre um, and we get to character, 
um, characterization. Um, I actually um, share these questionnaires that I have, um, and I, I have these questionnaires which are based on um, physiological, psychological, and sociological questions, um, which help me form the entirety of the person. And, and you know, there are some strange ones on there. Um, but, you know, um, like one of the questions might be, do you have many, if any, friends? Because, or, you know, are you kind to animals? Which, of course, you know, there are, there's a lot of criminal evidence that people who end up doing horrific things to people actually very sadly start out on animals. So, you know, those questions might seem bizarre, but, um, uh, but particularly if you're creating um, a pretty nasty character um, who is, you know, um, the adversary, um, I need to really get into their head. I need to know why they're doing the things that they're doing and how they've become that person. Because I'm a, I'm, I, I'm a great believer that, you know, uh, People will be doing these terrible things not because they are innately evil. Mm. It's because of um, the the world that they have come from. It is because of something that has happened to them, um, a brutal way that they've been treated um, or they've been indoctrinated. Um, you know, there are... Um, I'm not very good at books where a character is presented as just evil. Mm, mm. No, I, 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 I like a book to give me at least a bit of an insight into into how this person could be doing these awful things. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So can you give us some timing, some, some milestones in terms of let's just take Devour because that's the book at hand. Um, and it, like how long did it take you to think of the 70 index cards um, to, to write them down, um, then to start the writing process? How long did that take? Uh, until you got to your first draft how long was then the editing process can you just give us some key blocks if you know what I mean of time so people get an idea of yeah. how long this process actually took for you well um okay so I think one of the the one of the really good things about having a contract with a publisher apart from the fact <laughs> that eventually you get paid yes which is always helpful yes um is that it gives you a deadline. Because mm. um, um, one of the pitfalls of the genre that I write is that um, it is it takes you into fascinating zones and you start researching fascinating people. Yeah. And it can be quite distracting. Um, but to answer your question, um, I think um, I don't have a shortage of stories that I can write. I've probably got about 20 in my computer already lined up. But really? I... I, I will find the inspiration from anything from watching um, something on the news or Googling something or a friend will prompt me and said, have you heard about this? This is really weird. Um, and I note it down as a story idea. So if we, if we park the idea that I'm not searching for a story, I already know broadly the story I want to write and I've done enough research to know that the story can be um, told credibly. So that actually does have legs. It's not ridiculous. It could, it, it, it could work. Um, then um, really the index cards and, and planning it out, um, probably a couple of weeks. Um, but that's very big picture stuff um you know you're just sort of jotting down on cards that like a cent a few bullet points maybe um 
but where if we're starting from the very beginning the main the, the thing i spend most time on are the central characters so the the you know if you if you want to call them the hero and the villain of the story they're the two most important because they need to balance each other um um and you need to start a thriller with all the odds stacked against the the hero or heroine and seemingly all in favor of the of the uh, of the villain so i spent quite a lot of time on on the on the central character so i'd say um probably it's it's very hard because it kind of they they cross over each other but i'd say probably about um oh a couple of weeks on those as well on the characters and supporting characters like there's um an SO15 Metropolitan Police Detective, you know, there's a retired detective in it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's the stalker character. Um, that character required a lot of research because I needed to make them credible. So I needed to talk to um, a clinical psychologist about this who's dealt with this kind of um, person um, who also has um, a brain injury. Um, so then I think really it's a case of you start you you start writing um and then you just let it go at, um and see where it'll go and probably the first draft is more about finding the direction of your story um and I'd say probably that's about um, oh, I don't know 5 months right and and during in that 5 months how much time are you committing to it like on a daily basis do you write every day do you aim for a word count each day how do you actually make sure that the words come out um I well when I'm not having to do promotions and things like that because devour of course is it's coming up to a time where I'm I'm getting a bit distracted you know relaunching websites and writing articles and things like that. So that's that's a difficult one I, f I find to balance. But um, on the whole, um, I will always work at least five days a week. Um, and I like to start really early. So I'm sitting at my desk, usually in my pajamas, with a cup of tea by seven. Because that, um, if not before, sometimes six, because that is the best time. You wake up, your head is clear, and it is the, the time when I write the best scenes. Because um, you haven't got cluttered with distractions in the day, phone calls, emails asking you to do things, all of which is important, but it drags you out of this imaginary world. And and I find that the quality of my writing is hard to maintain later on in the day when there are other distractions around, which I try and, you know, try and not. <laughs> I try not to answer emails and things like that until later. Um, or do any kind of marketing activity until much, much later. So I probably stop writing um, about five o'clock. You stop writing at about five o'clock. About five o'clock, and okay. then I'll I'll do the other stuff that I need to do um, yeah. generally. Although at the moment it's a little bit the other way around because there are a lot of it, urgent emails coming in from say sure. Hachette um, for publicity stuff, and I'm thinking, well, I've got to make that a priority because they need it quickly. Um, but yeah, that that I, I, I'll do five ways. But there are, there are some authors who um, absolutely will write every single day. Um, you know, um, I think Stephen King writes every day. Um, Rob McCall Smith, I think, works all every day, even on Christmas Day. Would you believe it? So, um, but uh, you know, I I don't find the writing bit. I, I don't ever have a problem with the writing bit. I have a problem with distraction. Yeah, sure. I, of I find that I start thinking, oh, I really should answer that email. Or, <laughs> oh, I haven't put anything up on Facebook yet. <laughs> I'm going to get people, you know, I, I'm, you know, the publishers say you've got to 
got to keep interacting with people on Facebook and Twitter, and I absolutely understand that. Um, but then I, I find myself taken out of the writing world. Of course. Um, anyway. So, um, as you say, you teach crime and thriller writing at the Australian Writers' Centre, and people love your course. And what I'm interested to know is when you're teaching that and you've got, you know, people who are fresh to, to, to writing the genre anyway, they probably do read it, what are some of the common misconceptions people have about crime and thriller writing that, um, that they might learn or that you feel uh... it's important for them to know? Yeah, I think, well, one of the first things I try and help clarify is what kind of story the people in the class actually want to write because um, there is a little bit of confusion about what a thriller is um, and, say, what a detective-based story is. They are actually very different um, and sort of try and help them um, because I think you kind of broadly need to know that. So can you um, just, you know, flesh that out a little bit? Yeah, of course. Mm. Um, so um, a thriller is um, generally about a character who needs to prevent a terrible thing from happening. Um, the stakes are incredibly high. And so thrillers um, tend to be at the... You know, they're talking about things like the assassination of the president of the United States, the release of a virus that will terminate mankind. Um, it could also be um, some, you know, uh, terrible killer who is just, you know, got a terrible plan to blow loads of people up or to to to, to hurt children in a school or something like that. But they these are big things, and it's about a central character stopping, just trying to discover what's going on and stopping it. With um, So the, there, there are people who do die along the way. I mean, that's inevitably the case with, um, uh, you know, a thriller. But it's not like a detective-based crime fiction story where you have a body at the first chapter, almost at the first chapter, almost certainly in the first chapter, and then the detective, FBI agent, and so on, um, then has to find the killer. It's a sort of the big event has already happened. Now, yeah, more people may die along the way, but it starts with the death of somebody, and that's the focus. Um, so it sort of it, 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 it goes about a different way, and the detective tends to be a bit more procedural, not always, but, you know, a bit more how they're going to go about hunting down the identity of this person. Um uh, with a thriller, it um, often involves a lot more mystery about what is this all about? You know, what is actually going to happen? And you'll find that the central characters will be going off in all sorts of wrong, wrong directions, assuming that, in fact, this person is about to do A, when, in fact, really the plan is to destroy B. Um, so, yeah, so... Um, that's one of the sort of things I try and help with. Um, the other thing is that... Um, Having a central character, a lead character. Um, now, I know there are books out there where you have, say, numerous points of view and numerous characters. Like, I mean, you know, um, Game of Thrones, you, you've got all those different characters. Um, with crime fiction and thrillers, it's not to say you can't have that, but it, if you're beginning, 
your writing career, it's very complicated and it takes a lot of skill to do that. Mm. Generally, you're talking, if it's detective-based fiction, you're talking the lead detective and the person they're trying to catch. They are the same. You want, you want those characters. You don't want um, three lead detectives all, you know, you're following all of them. Yes. You really want to be, be supporting and cheering on one character that you really identify with. So when they fail or get hurt, you know, you're really moved by it. And the same with the thriller. Um, like I sometimes get questions of, um, well, you know, if my central character, um, you know, really can't cope with meeting the, um, the, the villain of the story, maybe I'll just sort of kind of send the cavalry and let them to sort, sort it out. And I was like, well, no, you can't really do that because the whole point of a thriller is it's a battle between good and evil and good needs, not always, and this is something we do discuss, but the whole idea is that, you know, your, your reader will want the, the good character to vanquish the bad character um, and you can't deny your central character that and let someone else come in and take the glory because if that's the case, we should have been following the character who comes in and saves the day because the climax of the thriller is the ultimate battle between them. It doesn't have to be a physical battle, but it is where the two characters will face it off and one will win or half win um, and the other one won't. So you say that you you read thrillers, you you have twenty stories in your computer ready to go. Do you obviously you're a big fan of the genre? Do you you know when you're doing the laundry or driving in the car, are you thinking about <laughs> you know saving the world from <laughs> destruction and that sort of thing all the time? Well. Yeah, um, I do constantly think everywhere I, it's a bit sad, isn't it? Everywhere I look, I think, I sometimes will pass someone on the street and go, what a face, what a look. Oh, yeah. goodness, that person would be ideal for X character. Or, um, you know, I'll see something on the news and I'll actually scribble it down. Um, or I'll, I'll, I'll suddenly have an idea, when I, as you said, when I'm driving, I go, I realise why this isn't working. Because sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll do something, you'll think, you know, this just isn't, this isn't right. Um, and at the moment, I've just, I'm just, it got, had that kind of same situation where I thought, mm, there's something not quite, there's not the right balance of characters at the moment in the next book. And then I've realised why and what kind of, I need to change the role from um, a journalist to a detective. This is a supporting journalist, not the central character, um, to a South African detective, and that will actually rebalance it. Um, um, yes, yeah, so, so yes, very sadly I do. And <laughs> it, it can sometimes get a bit depressing if you're focusing on the yes. horrors because I'm yes. constantly reading. A lot of my stuff is based in science um, um, and scientific research and you know, for instance, I was asked to do an article um, recently about the 10 most amazing things I learned whilst um, researching Devour. And one of them is about, um, and, and, and you may know this, Valerie, but um, I was a bit shocked that we um, potentially have the capacity to eliminate smallpox from the planet completely. So all we have to do is destroy the last remaining smallpox viruses and it's gone. But um, these viruses are kept in two maximum security laboratories, um, one in America and one in Russia. Um, now, the big question is why? 
why are we keeping them? And then the next thing that I thought was really quite spooky was they were supposed to be the only places in the world where smallpox existed in, in you know, obviously sitting in these vials. And um, I don't really remember, but in 2014, um, some janitor, I believe, was clearing out an old laboratory in Maryland in the USA um, and came across this sort of storage unit that had been completely neglected um, and opened the fridges, the freezers, actually. It was a frozen sample. Um, and it was later discovered that that was smallpox that had been um, sitting there quietly, um, <laughs> you know, in this laboratory. And you think, yeah, that's not a good idea. So anyway, but you see, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and then, of course, it leads to the question. I mean, you know, I'm not particularly planning on writing this story, but, you know, what if somebody who knew a bit about science thought, wow, yeah. I've got a chance here to release smallpox, <laughs> um, you know, and, um, you know, what could I do with this? How could I use it as a weapon? So, you know, you uh, and I tend to think about all these things. <laughs> when I'm reading these things, I'm thinking, now, would that make a good story? So this, um... is, this is kind of a bit of a dark world that I, I'm afraid I do spend a lot of time in. Yeah, do you ever have to check yourself and pull yourself out of it if, you're, if you've been delving into too much of the dark side of things? I do because um, I think, um, you know, sometimes it can be a bit, wow, we just do some, you know, human beings do some pretty terrible and sometimes really dumb things. I mean, we mm -hmm. do great things too and this is the problem. It's like if you're... If I spend as much time as I do thinking about what could go horribly wrong, because really that's what a thriller is about, it's like the worst thing that could possibly happen and I'm creating stories around it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I do, yes, I do. And, and you know, that's one reason why I wrote, um, you know, the dog detective story, the, 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 um, the humorous story, because um, it was light and uplifting and fun and uh, completely different. Yes. And so that took me into another world where, I, you know, I would giggle to myself. Mm. Um, and, yeah, so I think, and you know, and sometimes if I find I'm getting a bit too, um, you know, dark and gloomy, I'll call, call up a girlfriend and say, I think I need to meet you. I need a glass of wine and I need to <laughs> kind of like refocus on the good things in life. Yes, because when I, I mean, I enjoy, I really enjoy reading thrillers, but when I've gotten to the end of one, I'm often a little bit exhausted and I, you know, because I'm, I, I keep that tension because I want to know what happens next and it's, and I'm living in that world for that period. Um, <laughs> what do you hope people will feel when they've read your book? Right, what do I hope they'll feel? Yes. Well, I do. Yeah. Look, I think through. I think if um, if you are feeling emotionally exhausted at the end of a thriller, then the author has done a really good job because it is emotional. It a thriller is an emotional roller coaster. Um, it is meant to be. You're meant to be, you know, terrified when that when the character's in terrible danger, elated when they've had a success. Um, mortified when everything's gone horribly wrong, you know, upset when they're upset. So you do, you're taken on quite quite an emotional ride with a thriller. Um, sorry, what was the question again? What do you hope readers will what do you feel when they're feel? reading yeah. your book? Um, or how you would like them to react? Ah, uh, look... I hope they will have enjoyed it. I think the thing is that they would actually thought, wow, that really got my, my heart pumping mm. and, you know, I really enjoyed the character. I hope people really like Olivia Wolfe, mm. um, that they want to carry on with her on her next um, 
adventure. Mm. Um, I, I suppose it would be uh, satisfying in a way if they have a think about the topic of the book. Oh, okay. You know, because mm-hmm. the, um, the stories I write are about subjects that I find um, fascinating, worrying, um, you know, um, frightening. Uh, so there, there, there is a lot more behind them and that, you know, uh, I hope they might go away and think, wow, I've never, hmm, I've never thought about things perhaps that, from that point of view, whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. I've just sort of not really paid much attention to it and, you know, it would be interesting to find out because then I think the story lives on, that it, mm. it, it moves into a, a more real-world scenario which um, can be equally fascinating if you move over to the world of non-fiction. So, mm. you know, um, a, a book set in Antarctica, um, you know, if, if people want to then find out about the real um, expedition to Antarctica, they can. Yes. Um, you know, um, they can find out about the real Lake Ellsworth project. Um, and they can also think about the question perhaps, you know, is it the right thing to do? You know, if we're always um, exploring and trying to do these experimental things, you know, is the result always good? You know, mm. these are questions which I, I'm not I'm not going to, you know, say I ever have the answers to, but I think it's good to take a step back every now and again and say, you know, in this world I live in, is this a good thing? Mm. Um, mm. And should I be paying attention to it perhaps? And finally, for people who want to be, who want to write crime books or thriller books and they want to be in a position like you one day where they've actually written one, they've published one, what's your best, what's your advice to them if they haven't got there yet? Uh, My advice would be that it's probably the toughest thing I've ever done. So I've worked in all sorts of... um, corporate careers I can safely tell you I've never worked so hard (laughs) um but the reward is far greater because you're doing it for yourself you know you're doing something that is very personal um and it's your book um and it's your legacy I guess that that's that's the thing it's very it's a very personal legacy that you leave the world um my my main advice would be don't give up if you really love doing it if you really enjoy the writing process, then don't give up because you will get a lot of people who will say no to you, a lot of people who won't like what you're writing, but there will always be people who do and it's just a case of finding them. Great advice. And on that note, thanks so much for your time today, Louisa. No, my pleasure. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Great interview, Val. So I love it when we talk to our presenters because yes. it's you know you guys know each other, and I just feel like you get a really good, solid, honest, genuine interview out of them, which is brilliant. Yeah, she's mm. great, L. A. Mm. Larkin, Louisa mm. Larkin. So let's move on to what is our working writers tip. Oh, well, I've got one for you and it comes, it came via my Facebook page via the messages. You know, I get some random messages sometimes. Um, and Michelle has sent, had sent me this message. Now I've already responded to her via, uh, via the, the Facebook page, but okay. I, I thought it might be something that other listeners would be interested in and I would like to get your take on it. Ooh. So I'm going to read it to you. Mm-hmm. Hi, Alison. I've recently discovered and I'm loving the podcast with Valerie and I'm madly playing catch up. 
Just wondering if you've ever covered the topic of author versus writer. I've just finished the first draft of my first novel and I'm in the throes of setting up my author platform nice and early as per your fabulous advice. One of the first choices in the Facebook setup is author or writer. I like to refer to myself as a gestational pre-emerging author. is a little complicated but Facebook rather inconveniently doesn't list that as an option (laughs) would love your advice don't want to call myself one or the other if it would appear presumptuous slash weird slash imposterish by industry standards thanks so much Michelle so as I said I've responded to this Val but I'm interested in your thoughts what 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 are your thoughts on this author versus writer question um well first of all I think that's hilarious gestational (laughs) pre-emerging author I'm actually kind of glad Facebook does not have that (laughs) as an option because I think what this question you know what pervades this question what really underpins this question is that Michelle may be suffering from imposter syndrome Mm. because she says she said I think I don't want to call myself author or writer uh, if it would appear presumptuous, presumptuous. or yeah. yeah, by yeah. the industry. And like the yeah. thing is, you are writing a novel, I'm assuming, or you're mm. writing well, a she's book. she's written one. She's got, she's well, in one. the sense that she's finished the first draft. Right. So, so she's she's working on, she's finished the first draft of her first novel. I think right. let's have a little cheer about that Absolutely. for start. It's like, well, well done, Michelle, for Absolutely. finishing your draft. Um, so, yeah, so she's well on the way. Yeah, totally. So Mm. the thing is, own it. Own the fact that you have written a novel. It may Mm. not be published yet and you Mm. are doing the smart thing by building your author platform early, but I think that you just need to kick off imposter syndrome and own the fact that this is what you are doing and this Mm. is what you want to achieve. Like, it's totally okay. Um, If you don't own the fact that you are a writer or author, whatever you choose, um, you're never going to get there. So so it's mm. step one in getting there is actually owning the fact that you are it. Now, in terms of choosing the word author or or writer, well, for me personally, I would put writer because I'm not just an author. I write for magazines. I write content. I do copywriting. I do I do a whole range of different writing. So I feel that write the word writer encompasses, you know. Uh, all of those things and that includes author it's kind of a bigger umbrella in a sense ultimately it comes down to your personal preference Mm. if I would probably suggest that if you are um, you know if you are not comfortable go with the one you're most comfortable with yeah is the main one yeah um, That's exactly what I said. So, you know, mm. again, we're on the same page. My my theory is that it's a preference thing. Like often um, what she's, you know, she's writing, and Michelle is writing novels. So, mm. you know, generally author goes with novels. I call myself, I had to check, you know, mm. what I called <laughs> myself because I couldn't even remember. Um, but mine is writer and my Facebook address is actually Alison Tate writer. And it's because I write all the things. So mm. when I was, you know, setting up the page, it was like, well, what are you, what are you, Alison? Well, you're a writer. So therefore, you know, that's what, that's what you are. Um, but it really is a preference thing. I just think you choose what you want to call yourself and off you go. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Well, uh, good on Michelle, though, for thinking yeah. about building her author platform early yes. as well. Yes. Um, so speaking of building your author platform, we have our platform building tip for the week. Oh, what have you yes. got for us, Valerie? What is oh, your tip? I might get ranty. Oh, God. I love it when you get ranty. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I'm I, based. I read a lot of author websites, a lot, you mm. know, to see what's going on, to see what they're doing and because I'm interested in them, obviously. Mm, and mm. a couple of things drive me bonkers and makes me – and they make it makes me want to just, you know, shake them. Okay. Number one is their bio. The bio mm. on your author website, sometimes it, I find it – like I, I shake my head okay. when the bio doesn't mention the name of a single book that okay. they have written. Oh, yes. Like yes. seriously? Yes, yes. <laughs> like if a writer's festival or an agent or anyone is going to visit your website, they are going to read your bio. And if you don't mention the names of your books or at least if you've got 20 books, then at least mention your, your top ones or something. Yeah. If you don't mention the names of your books on your website, you need your head read. Mm. Drives me bonkers because often as Not well. Not to put too fine a point on it, <laughs> you need your head read. Especially also if, if someone wants to recommend you to someone else, they're probably going to go to your bio and often what they want to do is cut and paste your bio to show someone else. Yes. And if you don't have the names of your books in there, like I said, you're just nuts. The second thing that's bonkers is – when you have um, the, the section on books, you know, mm -hmm. often authors will have a section on books. Now, if you've only written a handful of books or a couple of books and uh, this is this may or may not be relevant if you've only written a couple of books, but if you've written several books, what what I just, again, shake my head at is if your first book was in, you know, 1987 and you're listing it down the page in chronological order, oh. again, you're absolutely nuts. Put the most recent book first and go backwards. Mm. It's absolutely ridiculous that you're showcasing your first ever book mm. if, in fact, you actually want, which is probably out of print, mm. if, in fact, you want people to buy your most recent one. book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. Drives yeah. me spare. Okay. Yes, so, I yes. can hear that in your voice. <laughs> well, I find myself because, you know, obviously um, with regards to the podcast, we are regularly visiting author websites and what I find myself doing is uh, when I am preparing for my interviews I'm looking for a one paragraph introduction yes and so I'm desperately hoping that you've written it for me because I'm a busy you know writer of all things and mm. if somebody is looking at your website as a features writer as an editor on a newspaper yep. they are also they are me. So yep. I go to these websites and the first paragraph says that, you know, I've wanted to be a writer since I was six and I like chickens. Yes, and I, there's a lot of chickens. There's a lot of people I who like chickens. I love, you know, chickens are cool. It's all good. And all of that information is also good, but it does not need to be your first paragraph. No. And what I'm looking for in your first paragraph is a really succinct two or three sentence bio yep. that tells me who you are that I can throw at the top of my podcast interview or I can put into my article as, mm. you know, the second paragraph just, just exactly tells people. Like, now, there's two reasons that I want you to write this for me. Um, now, as a, as a features editor, a free, uh, freelance writer, whatever, yep. I, again, make it easy for me. Mm. But secondly, as a person who is trying to help you build your author platform yes. and things like that, control your message. Oh, yes. Control your message. If you write that opening paragraph and you make it easy for a writer, uh, editor, interviewer, whatever, mm. then you control the message. You tell me exactly what you want me to say about you and that is the message yes. that I am then going to put across. So I'm just thinking that, you know, I have to say that I did have to get Valerie to write mine for me because I found it really, really hard. <laughs> Do that. 
get someone that you trust to sum you up in three sentences the most important things about you that that because sometimes you can't see it for yourself sometimes you get a little bit carried away with your chickens and your various <laughs> other things get someone else that you trust to do it for you if you're not confident writing your bio in third person yourself because mm. often that is a really good way to bring out the thing about you that's important that you may have overlooked. Yeah. And seriously, what is it with the chickens? Everyone talks about I'll leave the chickens alone. The chickens are fine. I love little details like that because that I will ask you about, ah, be aware of this. Do you remember the conversation we had with Graham Simpson about the chicken suit? Do you remember that? Yes, yes, So Graham Simpson put the chicken suit. He once went to a conference dressed as a chicken and he put it into his bio and every single interviewer in the known universe has asked him about that chicken suit because it's there in his bio. So be aware that whatever you put in your bio is going to be the thing that people ask you about. And you have to think about whether or not you want them asking you about chickens Mm. or whether you want them asking you about your books and your publishing history. So that's all I'm saying. Well, this and other very useful platform building tips are in Alison's course called How to Build Your Author Platform. And you can find that at writerscentercomau slash platform. And we do not talk about chickens at all. No, we don't talk about chickens. <laughs> anyway. All uh, right. Where are we? We're what's, at the end. What's coming up this week, Al? Well, um, so we'll be back into write a book with Al. So I'm, uh, as I said, I've got around 10,000 words to uh, finish the draft that I'm working on at the moment. So if you want to join me there, find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer or on Twitter at, at Al Tate. Um, I'm also working, Valerie, on a revamp of my website. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, that's exciting. I've decided I need to streamline my life a little bit and uh, and my uh, and the perception of what I'm putting myself out there for. And so I'm doing a redesign of my website and wow. it's going to probably take me a little while to get it right. Yep. So keep an eye out for that over the next couple of weeks and I will let you know when it goes live. Very exciting. Mm-hmm. And what about you, Valerie? What oh, are you doing? Oh, what am I doing? Well, tonight I'm going to be a judge at a thing called Pitch Fest, as in oh. you, you pitch something. All of these, uh, p- all of the people pitching have actually all written a non-fiction book, um, so it's a little bit different. They're not actually pitching the book; they're pitching the concepts that underpin the book. So it's going to be really interesting because I haven't judged on at a, at this Pitch Fest before, and uh, you know I love um, the fact that they've all written a, a book. So um, it's wow. going to be interesting. That is yes. going to be interesting. Oh, pitching! It's such a an art, isn't it? It is. Maybe and you can talk to us next week mm. a little bit about some of the things, some of the common mistakes that you saw. That's a really good idea. Okay, Why yeah, don't we do I will. That? All let's right. make a note of that. Okay, let's. Okay. All right, so um, that's it from us this week. Where do we find you online, Al? Uh, well, you'll find me at alisontate.com where I will be rebuilding my house behind the scenes. Um, <laughs> you'll find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer and Twitter at at Al Tate. Oh, and Instagram where Procrusty Pup continues to win friends and followers. Yes. Um, at Alison Tate Writer. 
He's adorable. He is adorable. Uh, you? You will find me at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Valerie Koo on Facebook and connect with me there. And you can snap me at the <laughs> Valerie Koo on Snapchat. So make sure you put the at the front because I bumped into somebody on the weekend. She said, oh, I connected with you on Snapchat. You're just Valerie Koo, aren't you? And I went, no, I'm the Valerie Koo. And she went, oh, my goodness, I've just friended some random person then. Oh, no. So... I'm, You're going to have the same problem I had on Instagram. Remember the Al, oh, remember the Al Tate Al Tate debacle? Yeah. Oh, that's what, it was one of the reasons I ran away from Instagram for a while. Oh, dear. Poor old Al Tate Poor on Al Instagram, Tate. who yes. is not me. No. Um, because you're most, Alison Tate writer. I am Alison Tate writer. And because there was already, you know, I, I made the, the criminal offence of not snapping up Al Tate as soon as Instagram opened. Yeah. Um, and so there is an Al Tate there and it's not me. And that, unfortunately that Al Tate kept getting tagged on oh, so much stuff. I tagged and her a lot. <laughs> we were at a pro blogger conference or something, so we were tagging madly and, oh, and she wasn't happy. No. No. All right, on that note, thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next week. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.